0: Hi, and welcome once again to the Ethics Lab podcast. I'm Dr. George Sakharidis. I'm here with Dr. Gregory Peterson, and we have a special guest today, Dr. Dale Potts, Associate Professor of History at South Dakota State University, who does work with environmental history, and it's a great dovetail with what we do here in the Ethics Lab because we talk about environmental ethics sometimes. How are you doing, Dr. Potts?
1: Glad to be here. And Greg? It's a glorious day in May, and I couldn't be happier.
0: A glorious day in May. I think maybe a day or two ago it wasn't so glorious, so we are enjoying the nice weather here. So we are here today to discuss, is it okay if I call you Dale? Absolutely. Okay. Dale's article, To Keep All Their Topsoil From Washing Away, writer Jesse Stewart and the Conservation of the 20th Century Rural Landscape of Eastern Kentucky. That is a 2018 publication in the Register of the Kentucky Historical Society, and we're looking forward to seeing what wisdom you can bestow on us regarding this, uh, this piece that you wrote. Um, so why don't I hand it over to Greg, and we'll get started.
1: Thanks, George. So why don't we just begin, uh, Dale, by describing how you became interested in Jesse Stewart as a writer and conservation figure. Why him? Okay, sure. Sure.
2: My research is in writers of, who uh, engage the natural world in the post-World War II period. And so I'm, I'm interested in different regions of the United States. So my research has been moving in that direction for some time. So what, I, what occurred was uh, the Kentucky Historical Society had a fellowship and... I was lucky enough to be able to get that. So I was able to go to Kentucky and research a particular writer from this period, Jesse Stewart. And my interest in nature writers of this period comes down to those who have a substantial amount of nonfiction work that they produce, perhaps in addition to novels and and poems and other forms of writing. So the nonfiction is what I focused in on. So publications in book form, publications in magazines, newspapers, and various other media that addresses conservation and preservation issues in the 1950s. Part of the reasoning is that between the progressive era of the 1910s, for instance, and then the ecological or more ecologically minded period of the 1960s, there seems to be this big period of time where people are kind of wondering, well, what's going on? So progressive era conservation ideology kind of continues on in various forms. And so I wanted to look at that middle space and try to see, well, where do things change? Where do attitudes actually start to change? And I think that Jesse Stewart provides a good uh, uh, individual to be able to do that.
0: Okay, so you're, you're getting ahead of us here, which is great. You're, we're, we're vibing on the same track here. But you alluded to the 1950s, and a lot of the writings that you talk about for Jesse Stewart are in the 1950s. Could you kind of just expand on what's going on during that period that might have influenced his work and maybe influenced conservation writing in general?
2: Sure. Um, I think to answer that, you do need to go back because what he's writing about in the nineteen, actually 1940s and 1950s has to do with the actions of his father, Mick Stewart. And Mick Stewart was a tenant farmer in the early 20th century in Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky. And it's there that he engages in a series of practices such as gully prevention and the planting of trees and contour farming, all in an effort to make the land more sustainable actually, to keep it healthy. And so what's happening is that Jesse Stewart is writing about the actions of his father in the 1910s and the 1920s, but he's telling the audiences of the 1950s that these are practices that are deemed to be healthy for the soil, but they weren't learned from sources such as the Extension Service or USDA. That, in fact, Mick Stewart came to those conclusions that those practices needed to be done on his own. And Jesse Stewart says that his father could not read or write. So what we are looking at here with him is Jesse Stewart is trying to show that the mountain people of eastern Kentucky, that even though tenant farmers in general have a reputation for not, at this time, for not necessarily paying attention to the health of the soil and doing good practices, that in fact Mick Stewart was not alone. He was not an anomaly, that there were others like him, and that by sort of transplanting the past and then uh, or discussion of the past and then talking about it in the 1950s in particular journals like The Land Quarterly, what that's doing is it is showing that the interest in soil conservation... That's in the 1950s that you can look back. You can go back to the early 20th century and see, well, you didn't necessarily have to be a college graduate to be engaging in practices that would help the soil. You just needed to be someone who was, one, caring for the soil, observant. And someone who was willing to experiment, all of which Mick Stewart was able to do. So Jesse Stewart's really drawing on the past to tell people in the present what's, what are good practices. And they are practices that he himself is continuing on this land that his parents were, that he has been able to acquire over the years, and will eventually engage in a preservation effort to keep that land preserved.
1: So one of the interesting aspects of your article and your account of of Stuart is this description of his his reaction to the the values of the progressive era and uh, how that uh, got implemented in in agriculture and farm policy. So could you just flesh that out for us a bit so what are when we talk about thing, you know farming and farming's impact on uh, the natural world, what were progressives doing in this period? Why were they doing it? And, and you know, how did that kind of shape the background out of which Stewart is operating?
2: Sure. Um, part of what Jesse Stewart, when he's writing about his father, Mick Stewart, as not being an anomaly, as not being a member of a very small group who are engaging in good practices, He is also, by extension, saying that tenant farmers in general, especially the 19th century and early 20th, were not known for preserving the soil, for engaging in good practices. So we have to be aware of that, that that is something that's sort of grassroots, that's from um, out in the field, so to speak. But what's happening at the governmental level in the progressive era, there's a couple of phrases that usually are associated with it, and that would be the wise use of resources. Also the greatest good for the greatest number uh, and some other factors. But if we really focus in on, say, the wise use of resources, what tends to happen is that, at least as far as what Jesse's describing, wise use of resources might actually be overuse. And so wise use of resources in the progressive era mindset actually just keeps going. It doesn't end in the progressive era it becomes sort of official governmental policies for various agencies. So when that's the case, it's consistently appearing 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and you're starting to see changes. The primary change, I would say, would be that if the wise use of resources does potentially often lead to overuse, then preservation needs to be considered more. In the Progressive Era, there was a, you know, very famous battles between conservation and preservation to begin with, and preservation in many cases lost. So in the case of the 1950s and Jesse Stewart saying that preservation has a place, and in his case, he's very much focusing that on lands that were associated with his family. So that connection then to soil and to land is... Moving into sort of a smaller area of uh, what they call W. Hollow, maybe compared to other authors like uh, Lewis Brumfield, who's perhaps much more well-known in, in the fields of agrarian literature in the 20th century, his projection tends to be out. So he had a lot more discussion, a lot more things to say about what was happening in, say, the national and international scenes. And he has a lot to say about soil, which we can get into if you'd like.
1: Yeah, and, and for our listeners, so there's this sort of wise use policy. What would be, at least for someone like Stuart, what would be an example of how the wise use policy led to overuse and perhaps uh, degradation of soil or some other negative impact?
2: Well, when discussion of, say, like farming practices, Jesse Stewart isn't necessarily against... The practices that say the USDA will promote. So if he is talking of, you know, the wise use as a sort of a, this larger term of resources that, when it's implemented at the governmental level, and say the USDA that he's not necessarily against, certainly against things like gully prevention uh, or filling in of gullies, contour farming, other practices that the USDA is promoting. But part of what I'm trying to argue too is that he's focusing in on his father and others and saying Mick Stewart's practices were predating. Practices say that the USDA was promoting by the 1920s and 30s. That in fact, Mick Stewart was actually doing those things. So, when you say wise use of resources, like the, I suppose the most common example would have to be something like national forests. That wise use means also multiple use. So, if multiple use of lands, uh, and moving away from the idea of national forests, but multiple use of lands, say in eastern Kentucky, would involve things such as farming, forestry, and towards the end of of, the 1960s, Jesse Stewart starts to write more about the impact of coal industry. So if the progressive era is saying, or ideology is saying, that wise use and multiple use are very much linked, then the evidence of that in eastern Kentucky, especially with coal mining, would sort of, you know, you'd look at that and say, multiple use isn't working. So preservation, which wasn't a very strong part of the Progressive Era to begin with, preservation now needs to be elevated. And I
0: want to follow up with that kind of just to clarify a point. And I think this comes out of your article. But in large respect, I think what you're saying is, and you're saying in the piece, is he's writing in in large part to defend the people of the region to say they've already been doing all of these practices and they have been maybe doing a good job and so when there are outside sources giving this directive it's it's a defense to say hey our people are have already been doing this and it's not that we disagree with what's being imposed I shouldn't say imposed but you know directed but that there is it's already present
2: yeah so i would say that that he's very much promoting community and promoting mountain communities in eastern Kentucky, in part because for you know, the, the reputation that appears in media sources, whether it's books, whether it is uh, television, radio, whatever it happens to be, in media sources, Appalachia in particular, is denigrated. And so the population, uh, the stereotypes that emerge, he's trying to counter those. And, you know, even in a comparison, say, with someone like Lewis Brumfield, who's writing uh, about—actually, he's not that far away. He's at Malabar Farm in Ohio. But his writing is, as I say, it's taking him outward into the international scene and talking about things like population growth. And if someone like Lewis Brumfield is writing and saying that poor soils make poor people— that is, he's in some ways sort of denigrating those people and saying that anyone who is engaging in bad practices or is on uh, poor farming communities and the soil is worn out, uh, Lewis Brumfield is actually writing that that people are, you know, they're not going to be fulfilling their fullest potential, they're, and he even goes further than that. But he doesn't really have very positive things to say, and and when the case of population growth, he sometimes would make comments that or writing that would sort of go in that direction, whereas Jesse Stewart, he's very much focusing in on rural communities to show. Not just the value of the soil and and the fact that soil health, you know, there, there are certainly connections to strong communities. But he's saying that you have to look at soil health and the community together, that they are almost inseparable. And it's not that everyone is engaging in good practices, and you know, he's 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 you know being realistic. But you know, someone like Mick Stewart who commented and just asked the questions like, why wouldn't they want to protect their land? And, it, and it's, it's a question that, that I think we still have today to think about, well, why, you know, why don't certain practices become engaged in? Why isn't it that you, you see uh, more widespread uh, efforts to preserve soil health? I think they're there. I think that we've come a long way since the 19, you know, certainly the 1920s.
1: So that, um, so that kind of raises an, an interesting issue because as you describe in your article, Stewart's father was a, a tenant farmer for much of his life, eventually was able to own his own land. The standard arrangement, uh, at least from what I gather from your article, is that standard arrangement was if you're a tenant farmer, you're on the land for three years, and then it's quite possible that when that lease was up, you would leave the land and, and go somewhere else. And so what an, an economist would often say in that sort of scenario is that there's just no incentive to think long-term. Your incentives are short-term. And so if you're talking about long-term con- conservation and you're a tenant farmer, you'd say, well, forget that. I'm just going to make my money, and then I'm going to move on to the next farm three years later. But what Stewart is arguing is that, at least in some cases, that's not the case, that, that, uh, that there is a, um, an ethic that his father had. That even as a tenant farmer, he cared for the land and engaged in practices to preserve the land, even before you have these organizations like the USDA uh, formulating policy based on the scientific principles of the time. Yeah, I,
2: I would agree. I think that by protecting the land, on a, a you know a um, a tenant farm by protecting that land, by trying to revitalize it. Because often when they arrived there at those farms, they were already in very bad shape. And uh, it's almost reminiscent of, say, like Aldo Leopold uh, going to Sand County and, and finding this farm from the Great Depression in such a bad state and then deciding this is something that you can revitalize and bring back. But I, I see what you, or at least I think I see what you're saying, that the question then becomes why. Why do you engage in continually trying to improve the land that you're on, knowing that in three years you're then going to move to the next? And I think that part of, part of the answer is, is certainly in Mick Stewart and just the makeup of him and his family, that there was this ethic that that's what you did. And, and I remember reading um, Jesse Stewart saying that, you know, we, there wasn't any hard feelings about that. There wasn't a sense that, oh, we, you know, we, you know, have somehow wasted the time here that no, instead, there's a sense that what you've done is you've brought this land back from the brink. And when you do that, then you can pass it off to someone else. And perhaps you hope that they will engage in those practices. And I, I haven't yet sort of found writings that might look at that question by Stewart or, or others that say well, okay well what did happen did were they you know continuing those practices but I think also part of what Mick has done and uh, it's not just Mick Stewart it's also Martha Stewart his wife all of the children together everybody's working together not just engaging in like tobacco production but forestry but a variety of different uh, activities like engaging in self-sufficiency practices to keep the farm going. But I I also think that what Mick Stewart and the family is doing is by improving the land, there seems to be an understanding then that what you're doing is you are, even if you're passing it off to someone, you don't know if they're going to continue those practices. You are still leaving land in a better position than when you found it. So by doing that, you are helping the community at large. And I think that's a major point.
0: Okay, thanks, Dale. That that's very helpful. Since this is an ethics lab podcast, the word ecology always comes up in environmental ethics. It's an important word for Stewart and you know the writers during his time. What would a more ecological approach to agriculture entail? And does Stewart himself use the word ecology?
2: Uh, that's an interesting question because the. Uh, word itself, ecology, goes back to the 19th century with a naturalist uh, and scientist, Ernst Haeckel. And so the use of it, though, by m- the middle of the 20th century is when it's sort of starting to become more apparent that you're seeing it in media sources. It's used in scientific journals, but it will appear in media sources. And so it, like the lay Quarterly will use it. But as far as Jesse Stewart using the term, there is kind of our understanding that it does appear more in the literature, certainly popular literature, by like the 1960s. So the terms may be different, but an understanding of an integrated landscape is very, very similar. So understanding that, what kind of practices would lead to a more integrated view of the land? That would mean hillsides, instead of trying to farm them, knowing that they have washed out and you have gullies, sometimes they're described as as tall as a person. Instead of allowing that to happen, you fill those in with brush, and there's a whole technique uh, that Jesse describes Mick using, but you, you fill those in, you do contour farming, or what is also done is that you plant trees. So by planting trees and understanding that that place maybe should never have been farmed intensively. So instead, you engage in forestry or silviculture. So by doing that, you have maybe forests on the hillsides, you have agriculture uh, on the more uh, flatlands, and you have wetlands and you have fruit trees and all of these things come together in in a more integrative way that is leaning toward ecology, and I think that that's part of the lesson of the writers from the 1940s, 1950s, is that they're kind of working toward that idea in a modern sense of ecological understanding, but maybe the vocabulary isn't there in in common parlance. So, but they are doing, and they are understanding that, wait, you do need to have a a larger understanding of all of these elements of the landscape. And if you do, and in the case of Mick Stewart, it comes through observation and love of the land, that you start to understand the connections. And then you understand people's connections in that environment itself. So there you get the connection between community and the health of the land.
1: So one of the interesting facets of your article was this little section, and actually it occurs in a number of places, but this discussion of worries about population growth mid-century in the 1950s. And this was a surprise to me, because when I think about the worry about population growth, I think more of the 1970s, uh, Paul Ehrlich's uh, population bomb, Movies like Soylent Green, and and those sorts of things. So I was surprised to see that there were individuals in the nineteen fifties who were thinking about and worrying about this. Although Stewart does not appear to be uh, one of them, or at least of not of the same mind, at least as as they are. So could you just talk a little bit about? What was going on then? Why, why were people thinking about this in the context of the 50s, which we think of as, you know, at least in the United States, as this sort of age of optimism and, and, and growth and everything's rosy uh, even at the same time you have these environmental problems starting to emerge?
2: That's a good question. Part of what happens in the post-war years Uh, In the United States, as you describe, is this, you know, the economic boom. You have the heyday of the middle class, the suburban growth, etc. But you also have the publication of books by scientists like Fairfield Osborne and William Voigt. And Fairfield Osborne's book, Our Plundered Planet, comes out in the late 1940s. And him and William Voigt and others start to look at the world as a whole and they start to talk more about population explosions and drawing on like Thomas Malthus of the early 19th century and the fear that eventually food will become too scarce and the population will outstrip the food supply and they sort of take those arguments and repeat them, but they repeat them in relation to soil health. And also geographically, they seem to focus in on the developing world. So there's this sense that, yeah, maybe in the United States, modern agricultural practices and all of these uh, technological innovations are leading to better and, and increased food supplies. But Scientists can also be looking at, you know, like the developing world and they see, you know, population growth and they see famine and they don't have very high opinions of rural people in some cases. And so, you know, and, and, and the famines that occur in the forties and fifties, they point to that and say, well, it's population growth. Well, someone like Lewis Brumfield, he's, he... In some ways he expresses that it's, you know, the population growth issues that Malthus talked about. I think he says that they, you know, he, he essentially agreed with them. But he also would kind of look at it and, and he would also say that technology and technological innovation was something that, say, Malthus could not have foreseen. So that is something that would help uh, to prevent famine. But in the United States, like Lewis Brumfield in his discussion of poor soils make poor people, he's making statements about like Appalachia. Whereas someone like Jesse Stewart is saying, Well, wait a minute, no, you you know, soil health is important to community, it's important to rural people, but you know, when you take the position that, say, Fairfield Osborne is doing internationally or Lewis Brumfield's doing, perhaps na- uh, domestically, you're sort of missing the point here that it's the community and the community's connection to soil, whether it's in eastern Kentucky or wherever it happens to be, that that connection is something that's lived experience. It's, it's through observation. It is those people's very livelihoods. So you know, a scientist who makes this pronouncement like Fairfield Osborne isn't looking at this community. He's not looking at this particular community. And so what Jesse Stewart's is trying to do is show that, look, there's a value here in observing and living in and understanding that you are a part of that landscape. And, you know, again, you know, like an opinion that's coming in from outside is not going to necessarily be held in very high regard if the, the person who's making such pronouncements about population and soil health has never been there or has never experienced what's life, what life is like for the people who live there. And I think that Jesse Stewart is trying to do that, He's showing that, look, here's look at the value that this lifestyle has.
1: Well, thanks so much, Dale. So we got one last question. We're actually, I'm going to try to wrap in two questions into one here and see how it works. So the last question really is, what can we learn from Stuart's writing for today? How might what he says be relevant for today? But we're also kind of interested in, and I suspect our our listeners are interested in, the possible relationships between Stuart on the one hand and Leopold and Wendell Berry on, on the other. So you mentioned Leopold already in your, your essay. You allude in a couple places to Berry as sharing some themes with Stuart, I think. Is there any sort of more concrete connection between these figures or not? And then, of course, what, what can we learn? Okay, great, sure.
2: First of all, I think when you look at the, the legacy of Jesse Stewart, and I think his efforts throughout his life to acquire lands that his parents had farmed as tenants and to acquire it and to get almost about a thousand acres and then to see that now what he could do to, to keep that in perpetuity was to help, you know, in the early 80s, early 1980s to uh, help to foster the Jesse Stewart Foundation, which is promoting his, uh, his literature, but also this land. And it's preservation that is, in many ways, uh, certainly the legacy of that land, that here you have a place that can exist without overuse of resources, that you can point to you know, this hillside and say, okay, in the 19, you know, 1900s, this hillside may have been washed out, but owing to the good practices that they engaged in, they brought it back. Now you have a forest here and you have a forest that is sustainable. So you may you cut down trees, but you're doing it in a sustainable way. And so that idea of preserving land in you know, a sizable, certainly, portion, but the preservation of land is a major legacy, I think, of Jesse Stewart. As part of your other question, there probably isn't necessarily a direct connection well, at least, we've not, I've not been able to find between, say, Aldo Leopold and Jesse Stewart or Wendell Berry and Jesse Stewart. But I think you're right. I think the themes that they are engaging in in their works are very, very similar. And they can be for the importance of community and rural community, especially, but also the importance of looking at what's happening in, say, Kentucky. With coal mining. And I think that you find connections there with Wendell Berry, with Jesse Stewart, and uh, with Silas House, all authors who engage in similar themes about people's connections to soil and people's connections to place, and in Eastern Kentucky especially.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Dale. We really appreciate you being here on the podcast today. Do you have anything that you want to share, or like, what are you working on right now? Or where can our listeners follow you if they're interested in following your work at all?
2: Well, um, I'm continuing working on this era, and I am working on a book project that will look at writers from the mid twentieth century and kind of expand the discussion to multiple regions, and in the hope of trying to make a larger statement about what what is happening in the uh, the field of, of nature writing at mid century. And that goes into the questions of what nature writers are writing, but also what readers are taking from those books and articles and, and newspapers, magazines, etc., cetera, and how that might inform uh, support for legislation by the 1960s for ecological issues.
0: Okay, great. We'll look forward to that, and we really appreciate being on the show, and we will uh, go ahead and sign off with that. So for Greg and I... Thank you very much for being here with us on the Ethics Lab podcast, and uh, you could just insert any generic ethical tagline right here as we wrap it up. We'll see you all next time.